0: Dear Heavenly Father, we just thank you for this opportunity tonight to look into your word and, and look more deeply and just appreciate all the richness and beauty of it. And Lord, just open our minds and hearts to receive your truth tonight. And I pray that you would encourage us, um, strengthen us in our faith, help us to be able to better defend our faith. When asked tough questions, when we, or when we hear uh, troublesome sounding accusations from critics and skeptics, Lord. I uh, pray that through this uh, material that you would strengthen us and our ability to answer those questions uh, with good answers. I pray your blessing on tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, good to see you all again and some new ones this week. And uh, I, I just am excited about tonight. Uh, last week we had a good start with Mike doing some introduction to apologetics, uh, what it is, uh, ideas around circular reasoning, and uh, moral, morality. Um, I talked some about the, how the Bible came to be, uh, how we got our 66 books of the Bible, uh, how it was accepted by the church, and uh, I, I kind of want to finish a few thoughts on that from the end of week one's handout tonight, and then move into some new material. Uh, tonight we've got some uh, great subjects lined up. We're going to be talking about uh, some uh, manuscript evidence, some archaeology and prophecy that give us great confidence that the Bible is the Word of God. In the second half tonight, uh, Mike Johnson's going to take that uh, teaching slot, and he's going to talk about uh, creation and the Great Flood uh, and defending the biblical view on those subjects. So uh, it's going to be a good night. Well, one thing that I started talking about at the end of last time was that how do we know what belongs in the Bible and what does not belong? And uh, there's this idea of the, the theologians call the canon, and not thinking again of a, like a civil war uh, weapon, but uh, a rule, a measuring rod. And when we say the canon of the Bible, we're we're talking about the collection of books which passed a test of authenticity and authority. And these are also the books that are our rule of life. Uh, and so, how do we know what should be in the Bible and what shouldn't be? How do we know there shouldn't be a 67th book of the Bible, or that we have one in there that shouldn't be? And so we have some different tests we can apply for canonicity. Uh, first of all, we said the writer. It, it couldn't just be anybody. It, in the Old Testament, it had to be a prophet, a lawgiver, or a leader. And there was many prophets like Moses, Daniel, Isaiah, and some important leaders, David, Solomon, Ezra the scribe. Uh, and then in the New Testament, the writers had to be apostles or else close associates of an apostle, uh, you know, like John, Peter, Paul. And then some of the close associates, like Luke, who traveled with Paul. Uh, Mark, who uh, was with Peter and wrote for Peter uh, in the Gospel of Mark. James and Jude, the half-brothers of Jesus. So couldn't just be anybody. And then secondly, we mentioned internal evidence. Um, that Each book shows it's inspired. When you read it, there, there's, some, there's a quality to it. There's, there's prophetic uh, language in it and authoritative revelation from God. And then thirdly... And this is what we're going to talk a little bit more about tonight is that the church uh, gave approval to these books. Uh, First of all, when we look at the Old Testament, Jewish tradition tells us that the the first compilers, the final compilers of the Old Testament canon, uh, were part of a great synagogue of scribes founded by Ezra. And and this is after the Jews returned from captivity in Babylon. And so they, they collected all the scriptures that had been passed down and collected over the centuries. And compiled them, and then uh, we see approval. So Ezra, with a leading scribe, and uh, gave approval to the books we have—the 39 books of the Old Testament. And then in in the New Testament, we also have Jesus referring back to the Old Testament books, and specifically the ones that we have in our Bible. It's interesting here in Luke 11:51, he's uh, he's speaking out against the religious leaders of the day, and, and he he talks about from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the temple. Yes, I say to you, it shall be required of this generation. Now, Abel is obviously in the first book of the Bible, Genesis, right? Zechariah is in 2 Chronicles 24, 20 to 21. Well, we think, well, wait a minute. Malachi is the last book in the Old Testament, right? Well, it is for us. But for the Jews in the Hebrew Bible, 2 Chronicles was the last book. So when Jesus says, from Abel to Zechariah, he's talking about that whole span from Genesis all the way to the end of those 39 books. No more, no less. And so Jesus here validating himself that the books of the Old Testament are the the words of Scripture. Um, And then in Luke 24, 44, Jesus says, these are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses, and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me." So Jesus here validating that the the law of Moses, which we know to be the first five books of the Bible, as we talked about last week, and then the prophets and the Psalms, uh, validating that those are the scriptures. And then then, uh, the New Testament authors and Jesus quote various parts of the Old Testament scriptures 295 times, clearly. There there may be others, it's kind of hard to say, how many words do you have to have to have a clear quote of the Old Testament? Is it three? Is it four? Is it five? So there may be more, but clearly there are 295 times when they quote the Old Testament scriptures. Um, Now, And then this is an important man here, Josephus, He's the most famous Jewish historian, writing in the late first century of the 22 books of the Hebrew scriptures before his time that were sacred. Wait, what, 22? 39, right? Okay, but to the Jew, they, they combine some of their books, Right? And when you look at the ones that they combined, we actually end up with the 39 books that we have. So even at the end of the first century, looking back over the period of time, the most famous Jewish historian is saying, these are the books of Scripture, and, and it's our 39 books of the Old Testament. So that's pretty cool, That valid- validating the Old Testament Scriptures. Now about our New Testament. This is interesting. Our, the first uh, church council to list all 27 books of our New Testament... It wasn't until the Council of Carthage in 18397. Um, individual books of the New Testament, though, were acknowledged as scripture at the time they were written. Uh, 2 Peter 3.16, as we read last week, Peter referring to Paul's writings as scripture, uh, recognized at the time they were written. Now, there were some books that uh, they had to debate about to make sure uh, that they really were authoritative and came from God. Some of these are like 2 Peter and 2 and 3 John, James and Jude, Hebrews and Revelation, they had a lot of discussion on these books. Um, But that's good. And and by the end of it, they came to this conclusion that these 27 books were indeed the ones that came from God, written by the apostles or their close associates. Uh, And they were accepted at the time they were written. Now, there's this guy named Frank Gabeline, uh, wrote books 100 years ago. But I think this is very relevant for today, that, that the collection of the 27 books were already accredited as inspired and authoritative scripture. And this is what he says. The Bible is not an authorized collection of books, but a collection of authorized books. Do you understand the difference there? The Bible is not an authorized collection of books. The church didn't authorize them um, at that time, at 397 AD, but they collected the authorized books. There's a difference there. They collected what was already recognized as scripture for centuries already, and finally declared it, and and that was to stand up for the truth because there were errors creeping into the church and bad teachings, and so they collected the books together and said, this is the word of God. These are the books that are the word of God. Well, the skeptics say, uh, how can Christians believe that these 27 books written by fallible men are the word of God by recognition at a 4th century council? I mean, that's kind of a long time, you know. They, they sometimes will say that the, that the accounts kind of grew as time grew on, you know, how stories become embellished, kind of like the game of telephone when you're kids, you know. The first kid tells the kid the story, and then it gets passed on and gets passed on. And by the end, usually it's something quite different than where you started at. And They kind of accuse us of doing that, you know, over the early first couple centuries of growing the story of miracles and Jesus and, and all that, and then the believers kind of growing in their belief of all that. Well, our answers to this is that we can be thankful that the final formation of the New Testament canon uh, was such a long and difficult process. Uh, They wanted to be absolutely sure that these books met the high standards of Scripture. Now, some of these books I mentioned that they had some debate over. Uh, One was Hebrews. Uh, Last week we talked about Hebrews, and, and do we remember who the author of Hebrews was? Kind of throwing a trick... Question at you, because we said we don 't know exactly which apostle or close associate of the apostle wrote the book of Hebrews, and that was okay because the glory, glory to God Jesus is the great high priest, and glory to him alone, um, but they believed the initial church did believe that it was either written by Paul or a close associate of Paul, uh, and then James uh, James, because they were questioned him because he had some statements in his book about uh, um, Faith without works is dead, right? And they said that con- some people said that con- uh, was contradicting Paul's clear teaching that that salvation is by grace. And so, uh, but we we don't have any real contradiction there. Uh, you know, we're saved by grace through faith, not of works, lest any man should boast. But if we have that genuine faith, and we have been genuinely saved, then that then we have a new life, and we produce the, those works are produced in our lives. Uh, and so we can also say faith without works is dead. 2 uh, Peter was challenged because the style differed from 1 per- Peter. 1 Peter has a, and the Greek is written very nicely, has a smooth Greek style, and then 2 Peter is a little bit choppier, and so they questioned that. But then you look at the end of 1 Peter in chapter 5, and uh, it says that he used the scribe to write it. So he had somebody else actually pen the words of 1 Peter. So it looks a little different, and that's okay. Uh, second and Third John were challenged because the author in them is called Elder, uh, not Apostle. But, uh, but Peter did the same thing. Peter called himself an elder in, in 1 Peter 5. So no real problem there. Uh, Jude was challenged, the book of Jude, because he refers to the book of Enoch in one verse and, and the assumption of Moses. Uh, but this, the, he was just quoting them. You know, pa- Paul would do that. He would quote the pagan poets in Acts 17, and, and that's all he was really doing there was quoting them. Uh, Revelation was challenged. It was accepted right away, but there was some challenge to it because it taught a thousand-year reign of Christ, uh, which is true. But there were some who believed that came from a cult. Um, but it had wide early acceptance, and then in the end they had no problem with it. So I, I feel like we can be thankful that it took a while for the church to finally say, to collect them together and say, this, these are the authorized books. These were the ones, when the ink hit the parchment, these were the books of, from God. All right, are there any books that got left out? <laughs> well, last week I showed you a couple of little books I had that were called the Missing Books of the Bible, and uh, there aren't any missing books of the Bible, but some include these 14 books called the Apocrypha, written between the Old Testament and the New Testament times, and uh, they're called the first and second Esdras, Tobit, Judith, the rest of Esther, the Wisdom of Solomon, Ecclesiasticus, Barak, the Song of the Three Holy Children, The History of Susanna, Bell and the Dragon, The Prayer of Manassas, First and Second Maccabees. And, um, so these books, though, were never accepted by the Jews or by our Lord Jesus on the same level as the rest of the Old Testament scriptures. You know, they had, and, and in them there are some good things, but some of them also have historical and geographical inaccuracies, some false doctrines, uh, such as Prayers for the Dead and Purgatory, Salvation by Works, um, which ma- later made it into the Roman Catholic Church. They accepted these 14 apocryphal books as scripture, and that's where, that's where those teachings come from. Uh, but they didn't have the distinctive elements of scripture, such as, as prophetic power. Um, Jesus and the New Testament authors, as I said, quoted the Old Testament 295 times in their writings, but not once from the Apocrypha. That's kind of interesting. You think if they were on the same level as scripture, that they would have at least quoted from maybe one of them one time. Um, and Josephus, again, when he when he puts together that list of books that were accepted as authoritative from God, he doesn't include the apocrypha. He he gave them a secondary status. So we don't we don't give them that level either. They're a secondary status. Um, Yeah, the Roman Catholic Church accepted them, um, and it was kind of interesting. It wasn't really until like 1546 at the Council of Trent that they brought them in as books of the Bible, and it was because of the challenges of Martin Luther. Uh, You remember Martin Luther, and he's known for what? The the teachings of salvation by grace, justification by by grace, yes, uh, and not by works. And so he challenged the Roman Catholic Church 29 years before that uh, Council of Trent on their teachings of prayers for the dead and salvation by works. And, uh, and so in response to that, the Roman Catholic Church decided to bring in those 14 books officially as part of their Bible. And they printed as part of their Bible, um, which is, which is kind of sad. But you, know, you actually look into these books of the Apocrypha even within those books, they say they admit that there wasn't a true prophet at that time. You know, one of the tests for canonicity was what for the Old Testament? He, he had to be a prophet, right? Well, these, these books even claim that there wasn't even a prophet at their time. In First 1 Maccabees 14.41, it says, The Jews and their priests decided that Simon should be their leader and high priest forever until a trustworthy prophet should arise. So they, they even admitted within their own books that a trustworthy prophet wasn't there. So. And Jesus didn't include them when he talked about the martyrs, and the church didn't agree that they were part of the scriptures, so we don't either. All right, there's another set of books that some people say should be part of the Bible, um, maybe not as big as the Apocrypha, but they're called the Gnostic Gospels, writings from the 2nd century after the book of Revelation in 95 A.D. Uh, but they were never given serious consideration by the early church. And I'm not going to talk about them a whole lot, because but other than to point out some of them have some very bizarre writings. And just to give you an example of that, in the Gospel of Thomas, saying 114, Simon Peter says to them, Let Mary go out from our midst, for women are not worthy of life. Jesus says, See, I will draw her so as to make her male, so that she also may become a living spirit like you males. For every woman who has become male will enter the kingdom of heaven. And you just think... uh, boy, is that really a book that somebody would ever consider part of Scripture? It's pretty bizarre, isn't it? So you just get the sense that these are not inspired books of the Bible. So should we expect any more writings to be added to the Bible? We say no. There's a finality to the Bible we have. In Hebrews 1, we read, God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in times past to the fathers by, his, by the prophets and has in these last days spoken to us by his Son." whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds. And then at the very end of our Bible, we have these two verses in Revelation chapter 22. For I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to these things, God will add to him the plagues that are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part from the book of life, from the holy city, and from the things which are written in this book. Now, when I was, when I was younger, I, I thought uh, this applied to the whole Bible, right? Uh, if you add or take away from the, this book, it's a terrible thing. You, you had the plagues or your part taken away from the book of life. I got a little bit older and a little wiser in Bible college and, and then realized, well, this is written just for the book of Revelation. You know, don't take away or don't add words to the book of Revelation. And now that I'm a little bit, maybe a little bit older and a little bit wiser, I'm again thinking that it applies to the whole Bible. And my reason for that is, is that Revelation, just think about the content of it thematically, you know. You have Genesis, the book of beginnings. When you get to Revelation, you have the return of Christ. You have his judgment. You have the millennium, millennial kingdom, and then, and then the uh, final eternal state. These are final events. There's, there's, a, there's a Thematically, there's a final aspect to the content of Revelation, and so when we get to the end of the final content of the ages, and then it says this, I think that really applies to the scriptures. God said all he has wanted to say and reveal to us, and this is it. So no more books, uh, no Book of Mormon, no uh, writings of Muhammad, no 67th book of the Bible. And the canon of scripture today is exactly what God wanted it to be. And it will stay that way until Christ returns, and One author says, read it to be wise, believe it to be saved, and practice it to be holy. I like those words. All right, so uh, we come up to inerrancy. Are there any errors in the Bible? This is what inerrancy means. Inerrancy of Scripture means that Scripture in the original manuscripts does not affirm anything that is contrary to fact. This does not mean that the Bible tells us every fact there is to know about any one subject. But everything it does say about any subject is true. So here's an omission for you. We do not have the original manuscripts that are inerrant. That when the ink hit the parchment, we don't have those. But that's okay. Uh, Our answer to this challenge that we do not have them, and so there's probably errors in our copies here. They say we have errors in our manuscripts that we have today. We have a we have a process though called textual criticism textual criticism, where we compare the various copies that we do have. Uh, and, and we can compare them together. And so say say if we had uh, three manuscripts here that have a, a phrase perfectly, and then we had another manuscript here, and there was two words were like reversed, or maybe there was a misspelling in one word in that copy. You would know from putting those four copies together, right? And this is what textual criticism does. You, you compare the different copies together. You can easily get back to what the original manuscript said by comparing all the copies. Because you can easily spot the one thing that's off when you compare hundreds and thousands of copies that we have. And so we can be pretty confident that uh, we have what the original manuscript said for at least 98.3% of the words in the Bible. Some say even 99.5%. That's That's amazing, really. For any document of history. Um, no other document comes even close to that. And, and, these, and these small variances, and that's what they are, is just small variances, are, are negligible. They don't change anything as far as doctrine or the person of Christ or the way of salvation or anything like that. Well, here we do have to make a few admissions, though. There are probably three, and I picked out the top three here, variances that are somewhat significant. And I, I want to bring these out to you so that you're aware of them, so that if a skeptic comes up and says, well, what about this passage? That wasn't supposed to be in the Bible. You're aware of that, and you're like, "Well, I know about that. It even has a footnote in my Bible that says that's OK. That wasn't in the original manuscripts. Um, so we have here in John 7, uh, so these passages are not in the earliest and best manuscripts. In John seven fifty three to 811, we have that story of the woman caught in adultery. Um, Many manuscripts mark that passage in your Bible, you know, in the footnotes to say it's doubtful whether it's part of the earliest and best manuscripts. And all the significant earlier versions exclude it. Um, but it, in spite of that, we, we could be wrong. It, you know, we could be wrong, and it could be part of the original. Um, so it's worth reading and considering the meaning of it. But probably likely due to the best and earliest manuscripts, it's not part of the Bible. Mark 16, the last chapter of Mark, ending of the Gospel of Mark, Jesus' post-resurrection appearances, uh, where he appears to Mary Magdalene, to the two disciples, gives the Great Commission, promised miraculous signs of the apostles, and then went to heaven, and then the disciples went out and preached everywhere. Well, do we even have to have that in the Gospel of Mark to know that those things happen? The other three Gospels say those same things. So people think that some people at the end of the first century or early second century tried to complete the Gospel of Mark and added those things. But, you know what, they were the exact same things talked about in the other three Gospels, so it doesn't change anything. It would be okay if it wasn't even there. All right, and then the last one here is 1 John 5, 7. And this is something that's just in the King James Version. So if you have a King James, if you're a King James Version-only person, uh, pay attention to this one. They might come at you for this. And it, it says, For there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. That sounds like a great proof text for the Trinity, doesn't it? <laughs> it would be great if it were part of the original manuscripts, <laughs> but we don't need that. There is so much talk about the Trinity and so many other places in the New Testament that we don't even need this verse to prove it, but um, they, they added it in at some point. And you know, you do have a 1 John 5:7 in your Bible, even if it's not the King James, but it's not this verse what they did in the later translations was split verse 6 into two verses. So you don't have the incorrect verse in your translation if you don't have King James. But you do if you have a King James. So King James was written at a time when they didn't have the earliest and best manuscripts, which we'll talk about in a minute. So none of these three situations are really significant. They don't really change anything, but be aware of them. You know, the skeptic, you might hear about these sometime. All right, another objection is that the Skeptics say that the biblical writers accommodated their messages in minor details to the false ideas of the current ideas of their day and uh, affirmed or taught those in an incidental way. So example, Jesus claimed in a parable that the mustard seed is the smallest seed. Um, When we know that, say, like the orchid seed is smaller today. So if Jesus and his omniscience knew that the mustard seed wasn't the smallest seed, wasn't he telling a white lie uh, to accommodate the understanding of their day? At the day they, at that time, they thought the mustard seed was the smallest seed. But if Jesus, being omniscient, knew it wasn't really the smallest seed, wasn't he, in effect, telling a white lie? And, and so you kind of, I got a little picture here. I don't know if you can see it real well, but there's a mustard seed by a couple coins on a on a person's hand. It is pretty small. Well answer to that is, that, I mean, what they're really accusing God of is being a liar, right? But the answer is no. Uh, God uses human language. He uses human language to communicate perfectly without any false ideas. You know, today we speak of, you know, like the four corners of the earth. Well, we know there's not four corners of the earth, right? Uh, we, we speak of the rising of the sun as they did back then. Well, we know the sun doesn't actually rise. The earth rotates, right? Uh, Jesus knew that the mustard seed wasn't the smallest seed, but he speaks in human language and our language and communicates to us, uh, which is a wonderful thing without any false ideas. Uh, another objection is that inerrancy overemphasizes the divine aspect of Scripture and neglects the human aspect. So last week I talked about uh, was the book was the Bible from God or from man, and, and we said it was it was from both. The Holy Spirit guided the authors of the Bible to write the words God wanted written. Um, But some say, well, if you have human writers in it, then you have room for error in their writings. Uh, Well, the answer to that is that Scripture has both a human and divine aspect. But that doesn't mean it has errors just because it has the human element. And God was overseeing that process. And here's that verse again from 2 Peter 1.21. For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. And so God watching over this process. You know, and human speech and writing can be absent of error, right, if it's guided by God, right? Something we could write, I could write. There were 50 people that came on August 16th to Creekside Church to the Creekside U class on apologetics. And every one of those words would have been true. You know, human words can be written and be fully true, and especially if God is guiding them to write those words. So we don't have any problem there. Uh, One last objection here. Some will just say, there are some clear errors in the Bible. And uh, my answer to that is, show me one. You know? (laughs) Uh, In which specific verse or verses do those errors occur? The small numbers of problem texts, like these little variances that we talked about, shouldn't lead any of us to believe that there's any errors. You know, we we don't say that everything recorded in the Bible is affirmed as true, but, every, but everything that the Bible does affirm as true is true. You know, For example, Cain said, am I my brother's keeper? Right? The implication is that he's not. So the Bible doesn't affirm his attitude. But, but what he said is true. It happened. But the Bible doesn't affirm it as truth for us. All right, I'm going to move into this uh, section. What I want to do for the rest of this time now Is leave you with an acronym that I'm borrowing from Hank Hanegraaff, the Bible Answer Man. Great on apologetics. Don't listen to him on eschatology, though. All right, maps. Uh, So remember this acronym: maps, manuscripts, archaeology, prophecy, and statistics. These, you know, really help us feel confident in our Bible that it's a reliable book. And I want to spend probably the most time on this first one, manuscripts. And I'm going to show you a few highlights of archaeology and prophecy. Because uh, what we first need to do is say, is this Bible we are holding authentic? Is this copy of the Bible we are holding an authentic copy of the original? I mean, because if there's been errors in it or changes in it or people have changed things in it over the years, why, why would we believe in that? We have to have an authentic Bible. That's manuscripts. Archaeology and prophecy then take it that next step and say, this isn't just a, a human book. This is a book from God. Uh, because we, what, everything we find in archaeology, all the predictive prophecy in the Bible, supports that this book couldn't have just been written by men, that it comes from God. And then st- a few statistics. So within manuscript evidence, we have a sub acronym called B, Bibliographic, Eyewitnesses, and External. So the bibliographic, bibliographic test considers, this is important now, the quantity of manuscripts and manuscript fragments, and also the time span between the original documents and our earliest copies. It's important because the more copies, uh, the better we are able to work back to the original, right? Through that textual criticism. And the closer the time span between the copies and the original is, the less likely the errors would have crept in. So when we look at the Old Testament, uh, we've had some amazing archaeological finds. In 1897, there were approximately 10,000 manuscript fragments from... From, is from the Cairo Geniza storeroom find, and they date back to 895 AD. That is an amazing treasure trove find of manuscripts of the Old Testament. And then, even greater, we go back another thousand years earlier of manuscripts here in the second point, is that they found 190 uh, manuscripts from the Dead Sea Scrolls find of 1947 to 1955. I'm going to talk a little bit more about Dead Sea Scrolls in a second. Because that is an amazing, amazing find. It's significant. And they date clear back to 200 to 250 B.C. So before the time of Christ. Old Testament scriptures, the whole Old Testament, except for the book of Esther, and they come before the time of Christ. So those prophecies in Isaiah, right? that prophecy of the coming of the Messiah and of Christ and the details of Christ's coming written before his birth. And so we, they know scientifically that these manuscripts are dated before the time of Christ, and that's can't emphasize that enough. That is great. And then we have another 4,300 approximately assorted other copies of the Old Testament. All right, so on the Dead Sea Scrolls here, I just want to talk about that. Here's a little picture. I know it's a little dim, but this is the Qumran Caves along the west side of the Dead Sea, northwest side of the Dead Sea. Has anyone been on a Holy Land tour over there? Has anyone seen the Qumran Caves? All right, excellent. Uh, So here is Qumran Cave 4, where they found 90% of the Dead Sea Scrolls. You can see a little cave in there, a little hole in the wall. And Do you know the story about that, by the way? There, there was a shepherd boy, yeah, and he, he was, you know, had his flock out that way, and goats, I think it was, and threw, threw a piece of something in there, and he heard something weird, like a shattering of a clay jar or something like that, and he climbs in there, and there's all these manuscripts, and he didn't know what to do with them at first. He, he took some of them back to, you know, he just picked them up, took some of them back to where he lived, and... Hung some of them on a pole. He, you know, when he hung on the pole was the Great Scroll of Isaiah, which is the, a complete scroll of Isaiah. Uh, and he's hung it there, and then somebody else heard about it, and they came and they investigated it, and they found there's some significance here. And the more they got into it, they thought, this is like the greatest archaeological find of the century. You know, they, they found all these manuscripts of the complete from every book of the Old Testament, um, but Esther. And that was only a third of the writings that they found there. They also found scrolls about the Jewish traditions and practices, and commentaries. You know, uh, it would these scriptures would have had to been around for a while for commentaries to have been written, right? I mean, you'd have the scriptures written, and they found them in three different text versions. So, you know, there would have been a while of time for three text versions to develop, and then a while for commentaries to develop. So they found these and date the scrolls to two hundred and fifty BC, but they're clearly In existence, the writings have been in existence for a long time before that, even. So, this is a great find that gives us confidence. And and so, when they compare these through that process of textual criticism to the copies we have today, they're very, very close. The, The differences are very minor, very minor variations, like, you know, orders of words and maybe a spelling or something like that, but almost word for word accurate. It's just amazing. Here's a view from inside one of the caves looking out toward the Dead Sea, where some of them were, you know, that's kind of dark there. Um, here's this great scroll of Isaiah. And so we have a very, the point is, is that there is a very short time between the original Old Testament manuscripts and the first extensive copies in these Dead Sea Scrolls. And plus we have 14,000 other copies that have been discovered. So this gives us confidence in the trustworthiness of the Old Testament text. All right, New Testament manuscripts. We have 24, over 24,000 total, which is amazing. And we have over 5,300 in Greek, um, almost 800 copies before AD 1,000. The time between the original composition and our earliest copies is an unbelievably short 60 years or so. That is unbelievably short. I mean, they, sometimes the skeptics will try to say, well, these were written a long time after the events happened or the prophecies happened. Um, and they kind of got embellished over a couple hundred years. Well, we have manuscript fragments uh, that are even within 60 years of the original. Pretty awesome. Here's a fragment from John 18. Uh, it's called the Rylands Papyrus and is dated back to 125 AD. That is early. And it's here from John 18. Here's the front side of it John 18, 31 to 33. The fragments kind of read into this section that says, The Jews, for us it is not permit, permitted to kill anyone, so that the word of Jesus might be fulfilled, which he spoke, signifying what kind of death he was going to die. Entered, therefore, again into the Praetorium, Pilate, and summoned Jesus and said to him, Thou art king of the Jews. And so we have this fragment from 125 AD from this passage of Scripture. That is so close to the original. That is awesome. And uh, Jessica and I went on a missions trip to Ireland in 2006. We went to the Chester Beatty Library, and uh, we saw saw this fragment. I think it was there at the time, but it's based in England on a permanent basis. It was just neat just standing there looking at this thing. Uh, And here's the Chester Beatty papyri. This guy was a collector 100 years ago. He collected all kinds of ancient fragments and parchments and manuscripts from all over the world. Here's uh, a significant one. Uh, He had this what's called the Chester Beatty papyri now dated back to 100 to 200 AD, containing most of Paul's writings, most of the Apostle Paul's writings. It's just awesome. And here's a little picture of one, called P46, containing 2 Corinthians 11, 33 to 12:9. So pretty cool. I got we got to look at that too. I'm like looking at this and I'm like it's cool, you know. <laughs> All right. So when you compare the Bible and the evidence we have for the manuscripts of the Bible to any other ancient writings, and I have this little print off in your handout, it is it isn't even close. You know some of these writings that we wouldn't even question, or at least you know English people wouldn't even question as being authentic, uh, like Caesar and Pluto, Plato and uh, Tacitus and all, the, all these guys. You look here on the right end, the number of manuscripts we have for those, it's pathetic, right? And the time span in years between the original and the earliest copies is like in the thousands of years. Okay, now compare that to the Bible, right? We have over 24,000 manuscripts. And the time span from the original to our earliest and best copies is only a short 25 to 50 years, around 60 years. That's just amazing. I hope that encourages you that the text we are looking at when we look at our Bibles is authentic. All right. So bibliographic, eyewitnesses. Just real quick, we have eyewitnesses. Uh, in the Bible, and that's important to have eyewitnesses. In the Old Testament, like Moses, uh, New Testament, Luke and John, who says, I saw this, we went and did this, and so you have lots of eyewitnesses. When Jesus was raised from the dead, the Bible tells us there were 500 witnesses. Um, So yeah, lots of eyewitnesses throughout the Bible. It's a great proof um, of the authenticity of the Bible. Thirdly, okay, so a quick quote from Hank Aaron when the New Testament accounts of Jesus began to be circulated, which would have been during the lifetimes of those who were alive at the time of Jesus' life, these people could have confirmed or denied the accuracy of these accounts. So the, the earliest copies that we have were written at a time when people who were alive at the time of Jesus were still alive and could have confirmed or denied those writings. So that's pretty important there that we have eyewitnesses, that we alive during Jesus' life and still alive at the time of our earliest copies. And then external evidence that supports the Bible. Every time you look in the Bible at a at a city, at, at a people group, or events that happen, um, we find accuracy in archaeology. Uh, everything proves to be accurate. Compare that to the Book of Mormon, for example. I mean, they have peop- supposedly the history of the ancient North American Indians. You know, from the early centuries after the birth after the, after the life of Christ. And there's the Lamanites and the Jaredites and. You know, they supposedly came from the Middle East and they settled here. Well, you know what? We look in archaeology and we can't validate a single place, person, people group, event named in the Book of Mormon. I mean, we find all kinds of evidence for the Bible of those things, but nothing, from, nothing for the Book of Mormon. Um, I showed you last week my 1920 copy of the Book of Mormon. I picked it up for a quarter, you know, at the book sale at Emmaus, and I've been using it as a desk prop to keep my desk level. For several years. Well, you know, when the Mormons came to my door one day, they, they wanted to trade up for it. They thought it was a great copy, a 1920 hardbound copy in great condition, you know. And I, I saw out of curiosity this last week after telling you about this this last week. I looked it up on eBay and I, I think I could actually sell it for at least $100. It's a collector's item. <laughs> so I didn't know I had that under my desk all this time. But, uh, anyways, we also have the affirmation of secular historians and early church leaders. So, just a little bit of archaeology. There is so much I can show you about archaeology, but I just want to show you five quick slides with pictures here, and uh, that validate that the people, places, events of the Bible did happen as they said they happened. So, first one here is this uh, little piece of rock here, the Tel Dan. Was it Stale, Staley? I don't know how you pronounce that last word there. dated back to 850 to 900 BC which has an inscription on it uh, of the house of David. Some, some people doubted that King David was a, was a king of Israel, a great king of the region. Well, here we have a little piece of rock from that time period that tells us of the house of David. Here's another one called the Misha Stale from 846 B.C., sometimes called the Moabite Stone, uh, which makes direct references to King Omri in our Bible, King David in our Bible, and even the name of Yahweh in our Bible. Dating back to 846 B.C. It's pretty cool. They dig these things up, and every time they do so, it proves the people, places, and events of the Bible. Here's one that's called the Nabadinus Cylinder. You know, for a long time, uh, skeptics d- doubted that the book of Daniel was authentic because in it um, they, they said that there was no evidence for a king named Belshazzar in Babylon during that time period. However, when they dug this up, there's an inscription from the king that he was um, appointing power to his regent, Nabodinus, over, over the land during his uh, away time. And so then when we get to Daniel 5.16 here, it says, And I have heard of you, that you can give interpretations and explain enigmas. This is the king talking to Daniel. Now if you can read the writing and make known to me its interpretation, you shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around your neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. So there was the king, and then his power is appointed to Nabodinus, second in command. And then if Daniel could interpret the dream, he would be third in command. So archaeology here authenticating that there was Nabodinus in power um, under Belshazzar. So, great find. Here's another one called the Caiaphas Ossuary, uh, which is the ossuary for Caiaphas the high priest in the New Testament. So we have this. This is great. Another one here, and I referenced this in a sermon um, when we're going through our series in the Gospel of Mark, going through the trials of Jesus, uh, Pilate, Governor Pilate. Here's a dedication stone that refers to Pontius Pilate, prefect of Judea. And and so again, every time we dig something up, it's it's proving the people, places, and events of the Bible. Uh, Another example that I don't have a slide for is that there was a well-known biblical skeptic a while ago called Sir William Ramsey. He trained as an archaeologist, and he set out to disprove the uh, historical accounts in Luke and Acts, you know, the places they went to and the, and the different things they encountered. Well, so he went on this painstaking Mediterranean archaeological trip to disprove all of these events and places and things that happened, and he became converted as one after another Place and event and landmark proved to be reliable and true. Um, So, again, confirming the trustworthiness of the Bible. Uh, Okay, a few words on prophecy. I've just got one slide for prophecy here, and this is the most important slide you could have for predictive prophecy, and it should be in your handout. Uh, The Bible records predictions of events that could not be known or predicted by chance or common sense. So, surprisingly, uh, a while ago that, that predictive prophecy used to be used against the Bible. People would say, well, they wrote these things after they happened and said they were going to happen at a future time. You know, but um, now we have those manuscripts that date our copies so early they can't do that. And so predictive prophecy is, is a great thing. It's something that we could not have known ahead of time or, or explain away by common sense. And, and it's bef- written before the event happens. And this is especially true and important with the prophecies of the life of Jesus Christ. You know, there's so many predictions about his birth and his life and his death. Um, We have prophecies that he would descend from Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, that his birth would be in Bethlehem, that he would be crucified with criminals, that his hands and feet would be pierced at his crucifixion, that the soldiers would gamble for his clothes, that his side would be pierced, and that his bones wouldn't be broken at his death, and that he would be buried among the rich. Isaiah fifty-three nine, and then we even have Jesus's own predictions of his own death and resurrection in John two. So it's it's a great uh, proof for the reliability of the Bible. You know, we kind of had to start with the manuscript evidence and prove we had an authentic copy of the Bible today. And so you know, the skeptic might eventually say, well. Okay, you've got me. I, I would have to agree, based on the manuscript evidence, that the copy of the Bible we have today is what was originally written. But I don't agree with what was originally written. You know, <laughs> I don't believe it was from God. I don't believe the things in it are actually true, even if it was the original copy. Even if you had the original manuscripts, the ink on the parchment, I still wouldn't believe it. But, but that's where we had to start. We had to prove we had an authentic copy. But then when you get into the archaeology... And then when you get into the predictive prophecy, these are powerful proofs paired up with the manuscript evidence that prove the reliability of the Bible. One last thing here is statistics. That our Bible is amazing statistically-wise. It's written over a period of 1,500 years, about 40 authors, and no true contradictions, zero contradictions. That is amazing. The the time span, the number of centuries, the different kinds of governments and people groups and places and events that occurred over that time period, 40 authors writing in harmony with no true contradictions. Statistically, that is unbelievable. That is amazing. And we can only say that's because it's not just a human book. It's a divine book. And then we also look at uh, how the Bible has had more influence on on human history more than any other book. I mean, how can you explain the explosion of Christianity? How could it even have gotten off the ground if it wasn't true, if it wasn't from God in the way it did? People, yeah, I mean, there's so many miracles in the life of Jesus. Um, Those would have been the things that they should have revised out or, you know, not included if they didn't really happen because eyewitnesses could have discredited them all. But they included them all, and we have all those miracles and all those wonderful things. And then we have the birth of the church and just tremendous growth by the millions. And how can you explain it? You know, the statistics are just amazing. So it kind of makes you ask uh, well, in conclusion, we say we have an accurate and reliable copy of the Bible. Accurate and reliable. And I just think, why doesn't everyone believe the Bible is the Word of God? Yeah, you know, there's a one word answer for that, right? Sin. I mean, it's sin. Our, our perception and analysis of God and creation is faulty. Wayne Grudem says it's faulty because sin is ultimately irrational and makes us think incorrectly about God and creation. You know, without sin in the world, the Bible would be believed by all people, would it not, without sin in the world? But sin causes people not to recognize scripture for what it is. So we need the help of the Holy Spirit uh, to understand it, to recognize it as truth. That's how we become convinced of it, is the Holy Spirit's work in our life. So our response, will we believe the Bible and believe God or reject the Bible and reject God? That's what we're left with. You know, Jesus rebuked his disciples on time for not believing the Old Testament scriptures. They were on that road to Emmaus, and he called them foolish for not believing that all the prophets of Moses had written. We are encouraged to believe the eternal words of God. I think I have some questions in there for personal reflection you can do on your own, but I'll just ask you one of them, and it's question number three on there, I think in closing here, in heaven, do you think you will believe the Bible is inerrant in heaven? Will you believe it just as firmly now? Without error. Fully inspired by God. This is a book of God. If we're going to believe that in heaven, why don't we believe it just as much now? And uh, hopefully some of these uh, Christian evidences, these, these proofs I've shown you tonight, just a few of many that we could have, uh, encourage you as they have encouraged me in my study of them. So, I'm going to close in the prayer now, and then we're going to have a break for snacks. I think we've got some brownie sundays lined up, a drink table, snacks, and then a like a toppings table. So uh, we're going to take a, like a 15 minute break, and then meet back here again for part two with Mike Johnson talking about creation and the flood. Our Emily, Father, just thank you for this time tonight to consider the reliability the authenticity, the canonicity of your word, the Bible, and at the end of the day, Lord, we just are so encouraged, and I'm so encouraged, Lord, and feel more confident than ever that when I look at the Bible, what we call the Bible today, that it is the very words of God, that you are speaking to me, that you have given me all the words that you wanted me to have and see and read and know and understand, and no more and no less, and so we praise you for that. We praise you for the preservation of your word throughout the centuries that errors haven't crept in, comparing our Bibles to those earliest manuscripts and seeing how you've preserved those, and even opening up the Dead Sea Scrolls find this past century after all these couple thousand of years at a time when we very much needed them to fight off the claims of the skeptics and, the, and uh, unbelievers. Lord, the unbelief in it is a problem of sin. And Lord, it's okay as a Christian, a faithful Christian, to have good questions because there's good answers for them. But Lord, we know that um, the unbelievers who don't see the Bible as the word of God, it is because of the sin in their hearts. We pray that uh, if there's anyone here struggling with the reliability of the Bible or has people in their life that they're trying to witness or minister to that are struggling with the reliability of the Bible or just reject it altogether, that you would soften their hearts and open their minds and hearts to your truth by your Holy Spirit. Um, So we thank you, Lord, for tonight and pray that uh, we'd be strengthened in our faith. Strengthening our ability to defend and reason with skeptics and unbelievers and critics and and even sincere seekers, we pray Your blessing on the rest of the night and on this food now in Jesus' name.